Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. You know, if it hadn't been for what Hand had done, for what Hand did, I think there's a really good possibility that Washington's army would have been annihilated. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Price discussing the life and times of Edward Hand, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon and Schuster, publisher of Liberty Is Sweet. The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Price. And he'll be discussing the life of a man who would eventually become Adjutant General, Edward Hand. Edward Hand has an amazing career uh, in the Continental Army. Uh, He's a major player in the American Revolution in both the East and the West. And he kind of shows the amazing attraction that Continental Service had for regular people. He was an immigrant and he was a surgeon. He put that all behind him uh, to serve in the Army. David Price does wonderful work. He always has for the Journal of the American Revolution. His study of Edward Hand is... Thorough, it's lengthy, it's exactly the kind of article we look to publish here. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Price. David Price, welcome back. Thank you, Brady. It's good to be back. Tell us about your background. Okay, well, um, I'm not a professional historian. Uh I don't have a degree in history, although I minored in history in college. I major in poli-sci, which some people would say is the same as history, but um, don't tell that to a political scientist. Um, and uh, But I was bitten by the history bug at an early age, around the time of the Civil War centennial, actually. I know I'm dating myself when I say that. but um, And I always like to write, and uh, that was the predominant skill set I had to employ uh, when I was employed, although it was a very different kind of, uh, very different kind of narrative style was uh, required. And um, anyway, after I retired, I started uh, volunteering at Washington Crossing Historic Park, the Pennsylvania Park, um, the Pennsylvania version of these uh, sister parks. That's uh, about 20 minutes away from me, and. Um, well, volunteered there for a couple of years and then was unvolunteered. Uh, so now I'm a part-time staff member there. But um, the my, the writing that I've been doing is, is really an outgrowth of my experience there. So out of that came a trilogy about the ten crucial days of the revolution. Um, that is the period between December 25th, 1776 and January 3rd, 1777. And I seem to have fallen into this habit of writing about unsung patriots with the capital P heroes. Uh, my first book focused on 
uh, several of these, including Edward Hand. And um, he, well, I, actually, I dedicated my second book, The Road to Aston Pink Creek, to Hand and the men he led into battle on January 2nd, 1777, which we'll be talking about, or I'll be talking about at some length, I guess, uh, here. And um, then my next book, was, my last book was about John Hazlitt, who was another one of these unsung heroes of that period, uh, who I also wrote about in the first book. And the um, next um, one that's coming up, which I anticipate West Home is going to publish, uh, I guess later this year, early next year, is about um, another unsung hero who I've not written about before, and that is Thomas Knowlton, in connection with the Battle of Harlem Heights, which will be part of the West Home Small Battle series. So, um, you know, that's how I got into this, and, and um, that's what I've been doing. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, as I mentioned, you know, I had I had written a, a, a brief chapter about Hand in my first book. Uh, it was a brief chapter about everybody. It was a uh, there was a subject to that narrative. It was kind of a series of vignettes, um, and and that segued into the second book, um, which is a account of the entire Ten Crucial Days campaign, but I think is unique relative to other such accounts because it puts the primary focus on the events of January 2nd, 1777, in which, as you know, Han was instrumental. The um, so-called Second Battle of Trenton or the Battle of Aspen Creek, as I like to call it. Um, and uh, you know, we'll get into that more, I'm sure. But um, I had not written, uh, well, I guess Maybe the, the immediate catalyst for this was that I had written an article about Hand uh, and his home, Historic Rockford, which I visited, my wife and I visited about, uh, oh, five years ago, maybe. Um, uh, and I wrote this article for, for a uh, local publication, the, the newsletter of the Lawrence uh, Historical Society, um, here in Lawrence Township, where I live, <clears throat> which of course was Maidenhead at the time of the Revolution, and um, that was received very well. And and then I guess um, I don't know. I was I was trying to think of something to, that would be an appropriate subject for my next uh, JAR article. Uh, you know, not that I was on a, a schedule or anything, but I thought you know I've written a few now and and. Um, I'd like to come up with a good subject for another one. And and so, um, you know, Hand, of course, came to mind. I'm, I guess I'm the only surprise there is that it, it, that it, it took me so long to write an article about him. I don't know why. I guess in retrospect, I'm, I'm not sure why that wasn't my first article. But um, the interesting thing about this piece relative to the others that I've written, not that I've written that many, <clears throat> I think this is the fourth one, is the feedback I got uh, a lot more this time than uh, with the other articles. So obviously it uh, struck a responsive chord, and and that's encouraging uh, both to know that there's, uh, uh, you know, from what I can infer, there's a lot of interest about hand among the, the readership, and um, also 
picked up some good, you know, some good information from, uh, uh, you know, a couple of the respondents who commented on the article. So, um, which is, you know, as you know, the really neat thing about doing this, um, engaging in this sort of activity, that getting that kind of feedback. So, um, yeah, that's what um, I think what what led to this article. Talk, if you could, about Han's arrival. He's an immigrant to North America. Um, yeah, I can tell you a little bit, because that's all I know is a little bit. I don't think we know, at least I haven't cr- come across anything uh, that suggests otherwise. I don't think we really know anything about his 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 life in Ireland, his life as a child or as a youth, other than, you know, when he, when he was born, who his parents were, um, John and Dorothy Hand, uh, was born on the last day of 1744. But um, other than what we know about him there, really, his life there was, was uh, his connection with Trinity College in Dublin, which was one of the premier uh, edu- educational institutions of the time, and uh, he did, um, as far as I know, he was not actually a matriculated student there. I, I guess you could call what he was doing, um, what, well, what we would term uh, auditing, auditing a course today in an institution of higher education. But he attended lectures um, at um, Trinity on chemistry and other um, scientific and medical-related subjects. And um, you know what what led him to to want to um, pursue this uh, this kind of study. I'm not sure, but uh, apparently he had something of a you know a scientific uh, bent, if you will. And so he did that uh, while in his early 20s, and then uh, apparently decided that he you know he wanted to go into medicine as a career. Uh, was interested in becoming a surgeon, and in those days. If you wanted to do that, um, and you were someone in, in Han's position, there were really two routes. I mean, one is that you could be you could serve a five-year apprenticeship with a uh, physician in Dublin, or the alternative was to enlist um, in His Majesty's Army, uh, which Han did as a surgeon's mate. Uh, I guess what we would call a, an assistant physician or or physician assistant today. And uh, joined the, uh, as such, joined the 18th Royal Irish Regiment of Foot in 1767, and that led to his coming to the New World. Uh, that regiment was was shipping out, uh, scheduled to ship out with with others at the time he signed up uh, in May 1767. So he was um, 22 at the time. And uh, he sailed with his regiment for the New World on May 19th of that year. Um, and that was the last day, it would have been the last day that he ever set foot on Irish soil and reached uh, Philadelphia uh, in July. And from there, he would, um, his, his regiment would head out to Fort Pitt, the site of Pittsburgh today, with which I know you're very familiar since you literally wrote the book about it. Um, well, he served in the British Army for seven years, and then, and during that time, he was investigating uh, Indian Native American medical practices and horticulture. Uh, so that supplemented the, the the training that he had received um, 
such as it was at Trinity before he left Ireland. And um, so he had considerable experience at that point um, as a, as a, uh, you know, someone in the, the medical arts, such as they were at the time. Um, so he apparently uh, reconnoitered the Lancaster area. Um, I'm not sure what in particular drew him to Lancaster or, or whether he did that in other uh, areas, but uh, apparently uh, corresponded with somebody there while he was still, before he uh, resigned his commission in the, um, the British Army. Um, which he did in, in July 1774, and um, then went to Philadelphia and from there to Lancaster. So at that point, he had ascertained uh, that there was, although there were, there were other physicians of, of various kinds practicing in the Lancaster community, that uh, the, there was a need for um, another one that, that uh, he would be able to, um, or infer that he would be able to make a, a reasonable living uh, doing that, and so he moved there in 1774, and uh, developed, uh, you know, I, what I well, I guess was a pretty successful, but but very brief, uh, as it turned out, medical practice. Um, he uh, and he met his wife there, um, Catherine Ewingham, uh Kitty, whom he married just a few months later, in March 1775, but only a month or so after that. Um, occurred the, you know, shot heard around the world at Lexington and Concord. And, um, you know, so he didn't, he wasn't able to spend much time as a, either as a practicing physician or as a, um, as a husband before he, um, you know, was called to duty in the uh, Patriot cause in the, in the spring of 1775. What do we know about Hans' politics? Well, how did he feel about the Patriot cause? Well, I think it had its its roots in uh, his youth in Ireland. Um, I know I said, you know, we we don't know much about his experience, but I think we can put it into context. Now, he was Anglo-Irish, so as such, as an Anglican, um, you know, he would not have been subject to to the same um, restrictions, I guess, or disadvantages that... uh, the Presbyterian Irish, the Scots Irish, were subjected to, but um, I, I get the sense that he, uh, notwithstanding that, that he still uh, chafed as other uh, Irish did, whether they were uh, Presbyterians or or um, Anglicans, at the restrictions being imposed, the regulations being imposed uh, from London at the time, um, and. Um, which, you know, uh, engendered widespread uh, resentment among the, the Irish population. Um, things like, you know, restrictions on Irish trade with other English colonies, uh, limitations on Irish wool ex- uh, exports so that they could only go to England or Wales. And, and this um, was the, the genesis, uh, or at least in part, certainly played a major role, I think, in... Um, the leading to the, the mass migration in the early to mid 18th century of Scots Irish and other Irish um, from their homeland to the colonies, um, and then once he was in America, um, albeit you know serving uh, in the British Army, 
I think that that um, background that he, that he had had in his in his formative years um, predisposed him, shall we say, to a more sympathetic attitude towards the um, um, colonial sentiment, uh, uh, colonial opposition to to uh, the edicts that were coming from London in the in the late 1760s and early 1770s, and and that led him ultimately to, um, you know, to burn his bridges really, uh, in terms of a having a, a, um, a military career uh, in service to the crown, and so he resigned his commission in uh, mid 1774, and uh, as I said, you know, uh, settled in in. Lancaster, um, and, um, you know, apparently became immersed, if you will, in the, um, you know, in the Patriot cause such that he, he, um, was drawn into the militia, into the Lancaster Associators, and then quickly into the Continental Army. And, and he was certainly an attractive commodity for recruiters because of the extensive experience he had serving in the British Army, you know, having been in the British Army for seven years here in America, and then also the uh, the medical training and experience he had uh, in Ireland and while serving at Fort Pitt. You read a lengthy write-up about his career, his exploits. Um, it could have really been book length. Let's talk about his time in New Jersey. What does he do there? Sure. Well, the um, and this this really relates, I think, to, to why I wanted to write about Hand and why I uh, dedicated my second book, The Road to Assunpink Creek, to him, uh, to, to the memory of Hand and his soldiers. Um, I believe that, uh, and I make the point very explicitly in the article, that notwithstanding you know the the um, significant and and meritorious service that he gave uh, on behalf of the revolution uh, throughout the course of of the war, the entire war. He um, and and was a uh, brigadier general for um, most of that period. You know, for for I guess six of the eight years he was serving in the army. I would contend, uh, as I did in that that book, Rodassabine Creek, and still do today, that um, his most crucial service, his most critical service, military service, was as a colonel uh, of the 1st Pennsylvania uh, Regiment, the Pennsylvania Rifle Regiment, that, um, well, was was involved in all three of the battles that were fought during the the 10 crucial days uh, in New Jersey, uh, Hans Regiment would have crossed over uh, the Delaware during the, the legendary Christmas night affair uh, when Washington's army marched on Trenton and attacked the uh, the German um, garrison known to us as Hessians who were occupying the town. And then in the, the second battle of Trenton, the Battle of Assunpink Creek, and also in the Battle of Princeton, um, the day following the Battle of Assunpink Creek, which was the capstone event of this 10 crucial days campaign that reversed the entire momentum of the revolution. But in a nutshell, um, I believe that that 
that second battle was, as I argued in the book, not only the most, although until recently it was largely neglected by historians, to the point where I referred to, I have referred to it as the Rodney Dangerfield of battles. Um, I would contend that it was actually the most pivotal event, military event, not only of the Ten Crucial Days, but arguably of the entire Revolutionary War. I think you can make a good case for that, um, both because of the, the, the nature of what occurred and also the fact that it occurred early uh, in the conflict before other very pivotal events. Um, so when I refer to the, the Battle of Assunpink Creek, I'm talking about this day-long running encounter between Washington's army and a larger uh, Anglo-German force that was commanded by General Cornwallis, Charles Lord Cornwallis. So, and we can think of it as occurring in two stages. The first stage was where Hand was most instrumental, and this was in um, commanding about a thousand um, skirmishers who were trying to slow up the advance of Cornwallis's army, about 8,000 men, 8,000 men that were actually marching on Princeton, leaving aside uh, the two rear guards he left behind in Princeton and Maidenhead. 8,000 men were marching on Trenton. Uh, Cornwallis's marching orders from General William Howe, his superior in New York, were one, find Washington's army, and two, destroy Washington's army. And uh, so Washington had sent out this um, advance uh, force, if you will, up the road towards Princeton on New Year's Eve uh, 1777 that was under the command of, of General Matthias Alexis de Roche-Fermoy, uh, a uh, French immigrant from Martinique who had volunteered for the cause. Um, so Fermoy was in command of the force that included Hans' uh, regiment, the Pennsylvania Riflemen, uh, also a, a Virginia brigade and uh pair of uh, uh, a Pennsylvania State Artillery Battery on January 2nd when Cornwallis' force was marching on Trenton, on Washington's army, Washington's main force that was uh, encamped behind the, um, or entrenched behind the Assunpink Creek in Trenton. Well, Fermoy, for whatever reason, probably because he was inebriated, uh, as was his wont apparently, jumped on a horse without saying anything to anybody, and headed in the direction of Trenton. And uh, so that left Hand as the next senior officer in command, which was, as has often been written about this event, probably the best thing that could possibly have happened to uh, Hand's men and to Washington's army. So um, to make a long story short, Hand's force um, delayed, significantly delayed the march of Cornwallis's army um, not just Hans Force, but the, also the elements, the, um, the road from Trenton to, um, I'm sorry, from Princeton to Trenton, which of course was not paved, uh, was a muddy morass because of rain the night before and, and unseasonably warm temperatures that had gotten up to 40 degrees. And so that was a major hurdle for Cornwallis's men, um, especially trying to drag, you know, their, their 12 pounders through the mud. And then, um, you know, hands, um, hands men um, waged a very adroit delaying action. You know, they would use the, the woods as protective cover and um, hold up this force, which outnumbered them for at least six to one or more uh, for several hours, 
its running battle lasted most of the afternoon so that Cornwallis's army didn't get to Trenton until at least four, it was probably after four, um, that January 2nd. So it was getting pretty dark out, and that was significant because it meant that Cornwallis could not launch a major coordinated attack against Washington's army um, because, well, there just wasn't enough daylight to do it. European armies, as you know, normally didn't fight at night, and Cornwallis wasn't about to fight a major battle on ground with which he was unfamiliar in the dark. Um, and so he intended to resume the battle the next morning and called up reinforcements and, uh, you know, appears to have believed, at least according to um, a, a quote attributed to him by tradition or legend that he had Washington where he wanted him. Um, quote, we've got the old fox safe now. We'll go over and bag him in the morning. And, of course, Washington's army made their great escape that night, circumvented Cornwallis's force on their uh, on his um, left flank and then marched up to Princeton and won the capstone victory of the 10 crucial days. But the point is that, that the effort by hand and his men um, – I, I think arguably forestalled, quite possibly forestalled the destruction of Washington's army by preventing Cornwallis from getting to Trenton uh, until, you know, it was too dark to fight, essentially. Uh, had Cornwallis accomplished his objective, which was to get to Trenton by early afternoon, um, he, in theory, would have had enough daylight to do that, to accomplish his objective, and, and he appears to have, um, you know, he was one of the most skillful, maybe the most skillful British field commander the British had, and certainly good enough to have spotted this potential fatal weakness in Washington's defensive alignment, whereby the Americans could be outflanked via one of the upper fords on the Assunpink Creek, and that was what Cornwallis had planned to do the next day. He wasn't able to do it on January 2nd, which might very well have enabled him to outflank Washington's army and drive it into the Delaware. He wasn't able to do that because, uh, I would contend, because of what um, Edward Hand and his men did. Talk about his tenure in the West at Fort Pitt. Sure. Um, okay, well, he was, uh, he received uh, for his, um, his, his, the merits of his service were, were quickly recognized, um, you know, by Washington and others. And um, so he is promoted to Brigadier General in uh, April 1777 and um, is assigned to command the troops at Fort Pitt. And, um, and I should say here that, you know, the, the, his service there at Fort Pitt and later on in Albany, uh, and even going back in retrospect as a, as a supply officer um, when he was assigned to, or posted to Fort Pitt um, serving in the British Army, gave him a wealth of administrative uh, experience uh, as well as, you know, the experience he had leading men in combat, uh, such as I've um, just described, <clears throat> not only on the occasion I described, but others. And all of that would prepare him for the culmination of his military career later on when he became, which I assume we'll talk about a little bit, uh, when he was um, uh, became uh, adjutant general uh, at Washington's recommendation. So uh, while he was at Fort Pitt, 
um, he had to contend with two interrelated issues or problems, and one, and that was, one was the threat posted by uh, hostile tribes, and um, inextricably intertwined with that was the lack of his ability to respond adequately to that threat because he just couldn't get the militia to turn out uh, insufficient force to to deal with that. And um, and basically, this is what he reports to the to the commander in chief um, that um, you know this this is um, making it life very difficult for him to say the least. Um, and um, you know, Washington writes back uh, sympathetically in response to Han's correspondence, um, but Han, as as he will tell Washington is um, forced to contend himself with, um, you know, fi- fighting in, in a purely um, defensive or, or from a purely defensive or reactionary posture because of the lack of a militia support and um, realizes that, you know, if there's, if there's going to be any serious um, effort made to of an offensive nature, uh, an offensive campaign to... Um, um, forestall the the, uh, the threat from the Native American tribes, the hostile tribes, that it's going to rely on the actions of the the army as a whole, uh, a larger force um, from the, the main army. So um, he's at Fort Pitt from uh, April 1777 until August 1778. He had made it clear that he was looking to... Um, to be transferred from Fort Pitt, and uh, and so he is that summer, and then he returns home to Lancaster um, late in August, where he is able to be present for the uh, birth of one of his children, and um, then uh, subsequent to that, um, he is a couple of months later, he is ordered up north uh, by. Um, Washington orders hand to to Albany, where he will will relieve General Stark, uh, John Stark, uh, in command of the the, uh, the the troops on the northern frontier. And um, basically, he's, you know, he's contending with the same problem that he did, you know, at Fort Pitt in terms of uh, trying to deal with the threat from from hostile tribes from the Iroquois, and lacking the. Um, the manpower to do that, the personnel to do that. Um, so, his, his to, to do really to do it adequately, I think. But but his time there is occupied with defending against raids uh, by hostile tribes in the Mohawk Valley, and um, he did the following year, 1779. He did lead a brigade as part of the um, larger expedition that um, Washington had assigned General Sullivan, John Sullivan, to lead against the Iroquois of the Six Nations that was launched in mid-1779. And then once that campaign was over, Han returned to Lancaster uh, for the winter, 1779-1780, but um, his respite, if you will, from service with the Army would be short-lived as Washington would order him to rejoin the main body uh, at Marstown in February 1780, and um, 
you know, he would take on more administrative duties there. He served as president of court marshals, um, also served on a, a board with several other generals later in the year, that September, that decided the the fate, if you will, of um, Major John Andre, uh, who had, of course, had been captured um, after, you know, um, his efforts to assist Benedict's Arnold, Benedict Arnold's uh, attempt to surrender the fort at West Point. In between, Hand did have some um, um, experience, again, uh, field command uh, leading a, um, a force of about 500 men against a small army of British troops which, that was advancing towards uh, Morristown in June 1780, but had to abort its effort and withdraw when they heard about the um, news of an anticipated landing of French troops at Newport, Rhode Island. So that that takes us up to um, the well, the end of 1780, at which point um, Han had become a candidate for adjutant general because the the um, his well the officer who would who would be his predecessor, Colonel Alexander Scamel, uh, or Scamel, had notified Washington in November that he wanted to um, be relieved of that position, and Washington recommended hand to Congress. Uh, there was some uh, su- support for some some officers, Nathaniel Green among others, for Alexander Hamilton, who apparently had an interest in the position too. But Washington felt there would be, um, aside, you know, aside from his, um, I think it's fair to say, demonstrated confidence in, in Hand and his abilities, that he also thought the the fact that Hand was a general and as such outranked Hamilton was dispositive in this matter because he feared that if if he were to uh, replace Scamell with with um, Hamilton rather than with Hand, that he would be facing blowback from some um, other officers for his having appointed a a more junior officer to this to this post, which was a significant post. So he well, well the adjutant general, as you know, was that was the most significant was the leading administrative position in the army, and in fact Hand would be. The, the last adjutant general of the Continental Army, um, and as such, he was serving, you know, side by side with Washington. He was now closer, closer to Washington, in a sense, um, physically, I guess, than you know, than he had been uh, hitherto. And um, so, in that capacity, he assumes responsibility for transmitting most of Washington's. General orders to the Army, uh, personnel administration, supervising outposts, and security-related concerns. And um, he would, um, I don't know how many people know this, but he he actually accompanied, um, well, he accompanied Washington during the Yorktown um, expedition, uh, in fact, visited Mount Vernon, on the web trip was on the way to or the way back, uh, or maybe both, uh, with Washington. Um, at Yorktown, he accompanied Washington and the French commander, the Comte de Rochambeau, on October 19, 1781, when they rode out to one of the captured British redoubts to receive 
the official document of surrender from uh, General Cornwallis. And um, Han was, at the conclusion of his uh, service, uh, <clears throat> shortly afterward, well, a couple of years afterwards, Han would be uh, made a brevet major general in recognition of his service. And uh, four months after the Treaty of Paris, which officially, the final Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the war in September 1783, Washington gave us a, uh, I think, a clear indication of his estimation of, of Han's service, um, particularly as, as uh, Adjutant General, when he writes a very adulatory letter to uh, his former uh, comrade-in-arms and, and expresses um, how, how satisfied he he was with the attention and ability that um, Hand had manifested in, in conducting the affairs of his um, of his department as adjutant general, and um, he also uh, and I, I thought this was kind of significant in terms of indicating what the personal relationship was. He included in that letter an implicit invitation to visit. Mount Vernon. Um, he writes, it is un unnecessary, I hope to add, with what pleasure I should see you at this place. And, you know, when you think about all of the um, unwanted, <laughs> frankly, unwanted visitors that, that Washington had during, uh, you know, his, his, uh, the years following his service as commander-in-chief, uh, having to, you know, act as, as, I guess, social convention demanded to act as a gracious host to everybody and anybody who showed up on his doorstep at Mount Vernon, which they did in innumerable numbers, and much to his um, chagrin, I'm sure. Um, and but here, you know, he's telling um, Han how much he uh, and and I think he was, you know, sincere in in that expression, how much he would have liked to to have um, you know hosted him uh, at his home. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? Hmm. Well, uh, it's well. I hope it, it helps people understand Hand better, learn something, you know, a little bit more about Hand. <clears throat> you know, as much as you can glean from from a um, journal article like this. Um, and and the role played by, um, you know, un unsung heroes, if you will. Um, such as as hand, and uh, and again, you know, not to I don't like to sound um, sound as if I'm a broken record, but I, I suppose I am on this point. Um, obviously, a major focus of this article was on the events of January second, seventeen seventy seven. I started with that, you know, in the opening paragraph, concluded. With that in the last two paragraphs, um, and wrote about it, you know, at length in the context of the article. That, um, yeah, I, I really, I really believe that um, that that uh, that that encounter and Han's instrumental role in orchestrating the um, defensive action by Washington's army <clears throat> on that day during that phase one or phase two, which was critical, was critical to this success, to, to the ability of, of uh, Washington's army to fend off 
<coughs> excuse me, the uh, enemy attack in fa- in phase two or stage two, and to uh, make its retreat uh, under the cover of darkness, to extricate itself from that, you know, from that quandary that it was in, uh, to win the third battle of Princeton and then go up to Marstown. Um, you know, if it hadn't been for what Hand had done, for what Hand did, I think there's a really good possibility that Washington's army would have been annihilated um, between the Assunpink Creek and the Delaware River. Whether that would end, have ended the revolution, I don't know. Probably would have ended Washington. You know, he probably would have met his fate on the battlefield or at the end of a British rope. But uh, and and if that happened, the first battle of Trenton would have been, a, I think, a meaningless footnote. And there would have been no Battle of Princeton the next day. So I just can't, you know, emphasize that enough. And, um, you know, if readers take away nothing from this article, I want them, you know, to, to take to take that away. Um, I just think that um, that was the defining moment for Edward Hand, um, you know, notwithstanding all the, the, the meritorious service he, he provided before and after, uh, to me, that was the most critical thing he did to, um, you know, determine or help determine the uh, course of the Revolutionary War. David Price, thanks again. Thank you very much, Brady. It's a pleasure to do it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.